From We First and Goal 17 Media, welcome to Lead with We. I'm Simon Mannering, and today I'm joined by Damien Bradfield, co-founder and chief creative officer of We Transfer. Now, We Transfer is best known for its service to move large files seamlessly to loved ones and colleagues. But at its heart, this technology company is a powerful storytelling platform deeply committed to empowering the creative class. And we'll discuss how to build and sustain a fundamentally purposeful company even as technology transforms around you. And how to earn deep brand building trust that inspires millions of customers to build your business. So Damien, welcome to Lead With We. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Damien, before I dive into WeTransfer, which I'm fascinated by because you're truly a technology company that's doing things very differently and very effectively, I know you started your career in advertising. So, you know, <laughs> Don't give judge us a me. little bit of background. <laughs> I know, right? I, 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 you know, well, we will forgive you. But um, why were you attracted to advertising in the first place? What was the appeal of it? So if there's anybody listening that's under the age of 18, there's, there'd probably be no appeal to it whatsoever today. Um, but when I was a kid, advertising had you know, quite a lot of kudos and there really were some fantastic ads being made. You know, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have um, an awful lot of the media that exists today. So we're really talking about fundamental TV, cinema, radio, print, billboards. That was it. And the idea of being able to convey a message in as few words as possible that really hit home, made you laugh, made you cry, made you, you know, want to learn more, find out more was, was really intelligent. You know, I was attracted to an appeal, um, to the intelligence of advertising, um, that sadly you don't see very much of today. I mean, there is not a lot of great advertising happening. Um, but, um, you know, this is back in 2000, 1998, 2000. Um, there were some really amazing brands doing some phenomenal work and there were some really intelligent people that were you know, highly regarded in the world of communications that um, uh, they still do exist. There are just less of them today, I think. Right, right, right. And I remember those days. I mean, as an Australian, I made the pilgrimage to Saatchi and Saatchi and Charlotte Street in London. Where right. you, we had those sort of spray mount closets where you'd, you know, you'd create an ad and you'd spray mount it and put it on some foam core and you'd have artists retouching the ads literally with paintbrushes back in the day. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's moved on from there. And I mean, what, what, what inspired you to evolve from advertising and to think about really launching a technology company? How did that transition happen? I mean, it, it hasn't really. I think there's the same fundamental applies to, you know, to advertising as it does to, to WeTransfer or to be frank, anything that we tried to do and we failed at many things on the way. But um, the thing that appeals to me most about advertising and generally about communications and business is trying to distill something down to the lowest common denominator. So when you've got something that's, you know, relatively complex or um, that perhaps you know, need some demystification. I love that process of trying to, you know, chop away it and work out what's the most intrinsic element um, that exists here and how can we try and get that across to, you know, Joe Public. Um, and whether you apply that logic to an advertising campaign or whether you apply it to starting a business or um, to CSR or anything else you're going to touch, I think um, the thing that that is really appealing to me is how do you make these things really accessible and how do you make it um, uh, something that people really want to talk about? I mean, so you talk about Saatchi and Saatchi. They, you know, they, they had this idea years ago of, of love marks. Um, I don't know if it's the best 
<laughs> the best word, best term. <laughs> right. But it was quite an intelligent way of looking at um, you know, the way that you create brands, that um, they, they needed to be, the desire was to create something that people really loved um, and really wanted to spend time with. Um, and that's exactly what we tried to do with WeTransfer. It was, if you can rewind back to 2010, it was a world that was populated by an awful lot of noise, very similar to the Web3 space at the moment. Um, incredibly noisy, incredibly disruptive, um, not a lot of clarity, and for a lot of you know a lot of people, not the easiest to access. And my partners and I all came from advertising, media, design. Um, we were all sending files all over the place. Um, some of it was still done by motorbike courier, some of it was done by bike courier, and some of it was done through FTP. And FTP was, and still is, pretty complicated. It's, it wasn't a very nice interface. It wasn't particularly easy to access. Um, and what we transferred did or was trying to do in the early years was really just uh, break it down to the simplest technology, the simplest methodology that you could utilize to get something from A to B. And that's you know really what we transferred did really well was just break it down so that your mum or my mum or you know just Joe Public without any explanation could really easily access. And I think, you know, one of the things that people notice about WeTransfer, because we all use it so often, we take it as take it for granted today, is that you've got a very interesting advertising model, to your point. I mean, those big wallpapers that you have, which are engaging in their own right, that's probably 24 banner ads that have otherwise could be used by a typical tech company that wants to throw advertising all over everything. So there you were, you saw the need in terms of file transferring, but you you had a very different advertising model coming out of the gate. Was that just a, a light bulb moment that you had at its inception or was this something developed over time? Because today it's very disruptive, especially how you've maintained it. But where did it come from? So I'll take zero credit for it. So a guy that um, uh, was a partner of mine in the business called Nalden, he had a blog. And, um, you know, again, this is going back to 2008, 2009, 2010. Bloggers were quite a big deal. Nalden in the Netherlands was quite a big deal. Mashable in the States was a big deal. Um, and, you know, people were, were desperate, desperately searching for information. And the blogger basically was that, was that source outside of the traditional news world. And what Nalden did differently was he, you know, he was pushing and publishing content, stories, narrative around different things. And in the background, he had these big images that um, were basically just making the site look very different from what everyone else was doing. And he brought that to, to WeTransfer basically using exactly the same methodology to um, you know, take a very simple site that didn't need an awful lot of text or a lot of um, buttons or features or anything else and reduced the, um, I don't know, the technology as such to the lowest common denominator again, which became that little box just to the uh, left-hand side of the screen. Um, and the rest of it, we basically just filled up with a beautiful image. And what, what, you know, you shouldn't forget is WeTransfer was primarily designed for people like us. So if you're aesthetically driven, if you're, you know, desperately against the disgusting banner ad, then um, you're designing a platform for yourself. You want to make it look as attractive as you possibly can. Um, so the, the desire was really to build something that we liked, that we think other people would like, um, that took what Nalan had done with his blog and brought it basically to WeTransfer. Um, but as opposed to just having, you know, an image from Universal Music or something, there would also be ads. Um, it wasn't particularly easy because no one else was doing this at the time. There, I mean, they're still not doing it. There are no other platforms that have 
the format that we have in terms of advertising. Um, it's not revolutionary. It's a billboard. That's basically what it is. It's a billboard on the web. It's a full page ad that you would see in Vogue magazine or GQ or somewhere else. But basically, um, you know, on the internet, um, and for whatever reason, people, when they were building websites over the last 20 years, decided that the best thing to do was to fill it up with as much crap as you could possibly fill it up with, as opposed to strip it back to, you know, what would be the most aesthetically appealing. Um, and it's still today the only platform really that has, um, I think, that very intrinsic, very basic um, need or, um, I don't know, goal to really try to make the, the, the experience as aesthetic as you can possibly make it. And I mean, that can't be overstated. I mean, what you're doing is you're giving the primacy to the user and you're staying in keeping with that sort of um, the nature of that user, which is they're the creative class. Yet so many technology companies today seem to have sold out. And really, you feel like that you're the product that they're selling to the advertiser and they're leveraging your data to then market to those advertisers and make money. So, you know, how does your business model work then? How do you have that sort of counterintuitive advertising model um, and still stay true to your audience? I mean, it was really difficult. I can't say that it was easy in the beginning. As I said, we were the only platform that had this type of ad. So we had to build a studio internally to make all of the ads for people that eventually would understand that we could actually reach a massive audience and that people were really you know, responsive to our types of ads. So once we'd gone out and actually sold them to Mercedes-Benz or Vodafone or whoever else, we then had to make all the ads. Now, this is a blessing and a curse because um, we're our own worst enemy in, t in terms of quality control. So we would only want to, um, you know, produce something and, and run something that was beautiful. A lot of the time we would be dealing with media companies who were looking at banner ads and saying, well, it needs to have this amount of text, it needs to have this many images, it needs to have this many buttons. And we would be having this argument saying, well, we, we don't think it does. It's a billboard. It doesn't need to have more than 10 words on it. Um, actually, if you have more than that, people aren't going to read it. Um, in our experience, less is better. Um, and if you just run a beautiful image of a new car with nothing else on it, people will click on it. And we were getting 5 or 6% click-through rates, which right. today just does not exist. You know, No one else is, was getting anything like it. But it was a bit of a struggle to get people's head around the fact that it was different, um, that they needed to look at the internet slightly differently, um, that we were a file sharing business that actually had a very creative audience. Um, and if I fast forward you know, to where we are today, as an advertising business, it's hugely successful. We are still the only platform in the world that pretty much dedicates 95% of the space that, you know, that is taken up on the screen to somebody else. Um, even if you look at the New York Times or you know, any other big quality publisher, they're still you know, filling up as much of the screen as, with stuff as they can. Um, and um, we are very fortunate that we pretty much have all the luxury brands in the world advertising with us. Um, and they bring with them, you know, other premium products. And, and now the bar has sort of been set. We're being pushed by our advertisers to actually um, retain the standards that we have. It's no longer a question of can you bend the rules? Could we do a little bit more like you used to do or like the others do? Um, now they actually are desperate for us to retain those standards and to make sure that we are keeping true to what we started off with doing. And it wasn't intentional. You know, one of the biggest selling points today is what everyone calls brand safety. That, you know, if you're a Chanel, 
your Chanel ad will never run on WeTransfer alongside something else that could be controversial because there's only one ad running. Um, you know, if right. on the rotation, we can control every single ad that rotates every 40 seconds. So we can guarantee you that you're not going to sit alongside a Viagra ad or, um, you know, something for uh, selling fur coats. It's, um, it's all in our control because we make everything, we check every single rotation and we're pretty much in charge of um, what the space looks like. Very much like it used to be when I first started in ads in Vogue or on a billboard. So you're a purist, you know, a diehard purist, you're the, the singularity and simplicity of messaging. And, you know, the point is well taken, because if you're going to equip anyone to be an effective sort of extension of your marketing department or advocate for your brand, keep it simple. You've only got a very short attention span. They're only going to take in a certain amount of information. And all of this density and this noise, as you say, you know, wastes that opportunity. What you're really talking, though, I think, in your in essence, is like you built this true trust with a creative class by stay, by making sure the user experience was aligned with who they are. And now, by the sounds of it, you know the brands that advertise on your platform want you to stay true to that. And I know that trust is just a fundamental concept to WeTransfer, and you also wrote a book about it in 2019. And I'd love to talk about that for a second because it was called the Trust Manifesto. And obviously, when you feel so compelled to write a book about this issue. You're royally annoyed about something. You know, you're pushing against some sort of trend that doesn't align with your thesis of trust. So what made you write the book? Why is the internet so off course? Give us a sense of that. Well, so the good news is that I don't think the internet is so off course any longer. But at the time, the, the time that I started writing it, we were right in the middle of Cambridge Analytica. Um, you know, it was really the scandals that were happening around data. And um, I think there was a real lack of understanding by the general public as to what was happening with data and what you were giving up and what was, you know, what was being done with it. Um, I had kids at the time that were eight and 10 years old. Um, and we lived in America. Um, it became very commonplace that um, my kids were being asked to create accounts for school, be it through Google or whatever else, and uh, handing over data constantly not just in terms of you know creating a Google account, but um, the login through Google that would go to their math and their reading um, software that was tracking and measuring how fast they were reading and um, their ability to understand different words. And what scared me a little bit was that um, at the time when I was talking to the school, um, they didn't really, I think, have a grip on you know what could potentially happen with this data. And my worst case, scenario was that my kids that were eight and 10 that were brought up in Holland, that moved to the States, that had a bit of learning difficulties in terms of English grammar and language, um, could potentially, through a series of algorithms and pieces of software, have their, their course sort of corrected by an algorithm in saying, well, we've done two years of analysis on you. We can see that you're learning at this pace, that your math is this good or that good, um, not Harvard. And I don't think that anyone was really aware of how potentially this, you know, this data could be used. The response was always, but it's tr we've, we've checked out these companies. And my answer was, yeah, but the company can be sold. The data is not owned by anyone other than that company. And if sure, the company is sold sure. to Facebook or wherever else, the data moves on. Um, so the book was really trying to work out and you know, highlight some of the issues that I think were happening at that time. Um, and also from, from our perspective, trying to reinforce some of the things that we'd done really well, I think, that were painful. I mean, we had, again, this is at that time, we were collecting pretty much zero data on our user base. There were no logged in accounts. 
everyone was a free user and we managed to build you know a pretty successful business based on um, a very offline attitude to the internet um, and my main goal was to try to you know shine this light on the difference between the offline world and the online world and how we had become quite accustomed to um, living two very separate lives in the in the offline world I would never ever accept somebody you know following me down the high street and trying to sell me something as I move through different stores um, tracking my data and eventually you know turning up at my house to to sell me something that I might have seen you know a year ago right in the online world of course though that's totally normal you just totally acceptable that you would be tracked all the way through your web experience and continually bombarded with you know products or offers tailor made for you because you know we're learning so much about you um, and I really wanted to just shine a light on the fact that I think you can run you know a decent business online without doing all the things that everybody else expects you to do in in the in the world of the internet yeah, I think you know the whole privacy creep and this whole tracking as you talk about. I mean, we're so well informed now as consumers, as citizens, although we do to some degree still feel powerless to control it, obviously, and yeah. unless we actually step away from these platforms. How would you say that we transfer, on the strength of your thesis around trust, has built up this just resonance of trust with the creative class and, and with clients? Is it just the consistency of what you've done? Because every brand out there, you know, that especially those who are being purposeful are trying to build trust so that they attract the employees they want, so they keep the employees they want, they stand out and have a strong reputation and so on and so on. Like, how have you, you know, manifested that secret source to become such a trusted brand? Um, we always used to joke that there was the fast food movement and then the slow food movement and the fast internet and the slow internet, and that we were part of the slow internet. And I don't mean that in the point of view of you know, speed and velocity of growth or velocity of development or anything else. I mean it in the from the point of view of the taking a longer term view and having a longer horizon. Um, and I can remember sort of quite jealously looking at some companies that had scaled, you know, to 20 million users in the course of two years and had raised 100 million. And I you know, was suddenly unicorns thinking, wow, you know, that's that would be quite nice. You know, what could you do with that money? How much good could you do if you were that big? And um, Quite a few of them are not around anymore. Quite a few of them have been absorbed and no, no longer stand for anything. And yes, they made some money, but they didn't actually have much impact on the world. From pretty much the get-go, we were bootstrapped. We didn't take funding until 2015. So an awful lot of the things that we thought were important um, became pretty entrenched in the company. And what we noticed was that um, when we made a commitment to give away 30% of our ad inventory to support causes, gun reform, racism, whatever it might be, it was a major attraction for talent. It was a major attraction and reason that artists would want to work with us and partner with us on projects. Um, and, you know, those long-term commitments that we, that we laid down are, I think, the reason that we attract good talent, the reason that we have that trust. Um, and these things were very organic and they were very, you know, rough around the edges, to be frank for quite a while until we got until we became a b corp and until we started building out a team that really began to focus on you know what we wanted to do in terms of csr but i really think it's um it's daring to take a, a long view and daring to take to have a longer horizon um, and i'm really proud that we have some really long lasting relationships with musicians like giles peterson he's been our head of music for five years now in the normal world 
uh, a brand would go out and get um, you know Lady Gaga to be the creative director of Polaroid. That'll last a year. Will I Am will be the creative director of Intel. Maybe he'll do it for eighteen months. Um, you know, those those sort of relationships were set up by somebody in marketing as a marketing uh, stunt or an event, um, and not really entrenched into the business or given the space to to really figure out how it should work properly. And I think that our longer term view in that space has enabled us to have you know, long relationships with the University of the Underground, Giles Peterson, Worldwide FM. Um, you know, many of the artists that we work with and we present are relationships that are more than 10 years old um, because I think we, we didn't really have any pressure in trying to do anything other than give them the space to, to tell their story. And I still think we do that today. I think, you know, what you're leaning into is just the different mindset and behaviors that come when you really take that longer term perspective. And I think hopefully the listeners will and those who are watching will understand that when you take that long term perspective, there are huge benefits that accrue and, and magnify over time. Um, and it's almost as interesting, I think, when I reflect on, you know, the call for business more broadly to not be driven by quarterly earnings reports and, you know, the expectations of analysts, but to take this longer term perspective, but then to hear from you how that longer term perspective allowed you to stay true to what made you different, what made you authentic, and that in turn has driven your business growth. So I find it fascinating. And just in terms of, you know, trust, you know, I think you're the only tech company that has a net promoter score up around, you know, in the 80s, hovering around the 80s. And that's what I mean, a quantifiable level of trust out there, which is very unusual, which is why I want to ask you about it. And and on the strength of that, you know, every company today now faces this new demand to have a point of view or show up for multiple crises. I mean, we've got COVID, we've got the response to the Black Lives Matter movement, we've got, you know, the climate emergency. It seems like this daily diet of, you know, challenges out there. So as you mentioned that you've grown now and you've sort of built a team around it, help us understand how have you formalized what to speak up about you know, because a lot of business leaders, entrepreneurs or CEOs are sitting there going, what do I talk about and when? So how do you think that through? Well, I definitely don't have the question what the problem of what should I talk about. Um, yeah, I think you talk about things that matter. So I think if somebody has to talk about or question, you know, what, what their purpose is or what they should be saying, um, I'm not sure they're really necessarily in the right job. I'm very proud to say that we've done you know, through B Corp, um, through sort of relationships, sorry, with um, Unilever, we became quite friendly with Ben and Jerry. Um, yeah, you would never have had to tell Ben and Jerry what they should talk about. They talked about what they thought no, mattered. Very true. You know, and they yeah. talked about what they, they felt was an issue at the time and those things that um, they felt that they could, um, you know, have some weight with or uh, have, make a difference. That's the same for us. We did, as I said, it was very organic for 10 years. And it was very much on the case of, okay, we think this is important. This is going to be an amazing artist. We should back them. You know, this is something that we think is going to be um, something in the future that people will talk about. And a lot of the time we got it wrong. Sometimes we're really lucky and we got it right. Um, when it came to causes, I think it was, we've been through some pretty traumatic times the last six, seven years. Um, and you touched on quite a few of them, particularly living in the States. You can't really ignore them. I mean, you know, gun control major issue black lives matter major issue uh, these things are happening the conversations that we're having every day the conversations that are in the papers every day um and they're certainly things that are really um you know, controversial and complex for people in the creative sector and, and in business so 
you know, when we can, we absolutely want to try and jump in and 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 um, and lend our voice to it, or simply enable the platform to help another, you know, right. you know lend their voice. What's happened in the last couple of years, though, is um, I've had to go back completely on something I said in the early on, which was we'll never have a CSR department. Everyone, everyone <laughs> in the company is the CSR department. Um, we're all in it, um, you know, for the for the greater good. Um, the reason I had to go back on it was because when everybody is the CSR department, then everybody has things that they care about and everybody Absolutely. wants to say something and you can't, right. you know, physically we can't do it. Um, and what we did for quite a few years was just spread ourselves too thin. We would get involved in too many causes, too many projects. Um, we would get overexcited about things that ultimately we could only, you know, support with a limited amount of money or a limited amount of media. And it just wasn't, it wasn't good business. You know, we are a business. I'm always, you know, very conscious of saying we are, we are trying to be a good business. Um, but this wasn't good business. So we now have a team. It's very small. Um, it works very closely with we present. Um, we, you know, we look at what we present can do in terms of making sure that we are truly diverse, that we represent every nationality that we can, that we touch every continent every year, and that it's completely gender neutral. And then within the CSR department, um, really trying to work out you know what matters and what you know, what are we responsible for therefore what do we need to try to make sure that we're fixing um and then last year we launched a foundation and the foundation's role um has also been recently defined that uh, if csr department within we transfer is responsible for making sure that we're um, trying to get towards you know net, net negativity for the footprint that we have the the foundation is responsible for looking after emerging artists um, and right. those two things are very clearly split and the teams now know exactly what their roles are there's no overlap there's no crossover um, and we can be much more granular and singular i think in making sure that our money and our media goes to where it matters and i think you know the the structure you put there between your foundation the csr department and being a b corp which is a you know, a certified company that has its values institutionalized into its articles of incorporation and so on, that really provides that platform. And then on top of that, I'd love to talk about We Present for a second, because I know that you've got, um, you know, you've got some content that's nominated for an Oscar this year, you know, a film that's called The, the Long Goodbye. Why are you creating an editorial platform? What role does this content play? And, and it's fantastic that it's being so well received. So it's always been there, to be honest. It was, again, organic. In the beginning, we'd run we'd have a friend who was a photographer, an illustrator, and we'd simply run their work on WeTransfer. So they could be given a wallpaper, we'd give them impressions. Um, and as I touched on earlier on, you know, we used to have a five or a 6% click-through rate. And when you're talking about, you know, 60 million people looking at and clicking on an image, then most of the time we would crash the artist's website. Not particularly good business, not particularly no, useful. No, a dubious honor, a dubious <laughs> honor for anyone, right? So we said, okay, what we should do is we'll build a, a website, so we'll host their work on it, and then we'll click through to that place. So that started off as a platform called This Works. It bred and morphed into um, what was called, no, sorry, We Transfer Culture that turned into This Works that eventually became We Present. And over the years, it basically just professionalized. Um, and it was no longer a destination just to um, to house and host some of the artists that we were supporting, but we present became and is, um, you know, a real destination telling stories around design, fashion, film, art, um, and no longer, um, you know, a collection of our sort of friends, but um, a collection of work that really that really matters. Um, 
it's got three million <coughs> three million monthly readers. Um, it's become you know, super well recognized by the creative community. There are barely any ads on it. Um, we only publish two or three articles a week, and we've got to a privileged position where you know we are in close contact with some amazing artists. The one you mentioned is Riz Ahmed, who um, came to us and said. You know, it was height of Brexit worries in in the UK. Um, he's a, a Muslim artist, um, and he was compelled to produce a film that was going to touch on, you know, what they were feeling at the time, which was the anxiety around Brexit and what it was going to mean for, um, you know, ethnic minorities and uh, particularly the Muslim community in the UK. And he wanted to make a short film, and would we be interested in financing it? In um, you know working with them on it and then showcasing it on we present. Now, the opportunity to work with someone like Riz is something that you know as a creative you bite your arm off for. Um, and we gave him basically free reign to produce what he wanted. It's a heavy film. I don't know if you watched it. Um, anybody that's going to watch it, you know, there's it's not light content, but no, it's really sure. important content. Um, and I think the story has really resonated. And as you say, yeah, we're um, 27th of March. We find out whether or not uh, he and Anil, the, the director, win an Oscar for it, which would, which would be amazing. You know, it's, uh, couldn't have and it's, it. a it's a powerful through line between you staying true to the integrity of your intent in the first place, just basic good business, you know, you, from an advertising perspective, like stay true to the creative class, keep it simple, through to you know, supporting the creative class through, you know, the, the file transfers that you do through to the CSR, the foundation, the B Corp, and now this content. Was it kind of strategic and logical in sequence or was it just organic that you grew this way? How would you, when you look back now, how would you characterize it? I would love to say it was completely strategic and um, it was all well thought through, but it's not. I mean, honestly, it's been very organic. Um, the internet has moved and changed, you know, at a pretty pretty impressive velocity over the last ten years, um, and I'd just th like to say that we've managed to keep up with it, and I think um, keep delivering work that I think matters, as opposed to getting trapped into the content game. I know I just referred to Riz's film as content, um, but to to make a clear delineation between what I see as content and what I think is you know it's film. Um, there's an awful lot of content that has a lifespan, the shelf life of maybe, maybe a minute, maybe a month, maybe a year. Um, but what we're trying to produce is evergreen content that is, um, you know, it's going back to what we were talking about right at the beginning. It's, it's work that you really want to spend time with. And Riz's film will be as relevant today as it will be in 20 years' time. And I'm you know, very proud that we were able to play a, play a role in that. It's, it will likely evolve again. You know, we, um, I'm quite proud to say, are a relatively, relatively nimble and, um, you know, adaptable company that I think as, as things have moved on and as situations have changed, we've been able to adapt to make sure that we're um, working on stuff that, that matters right now and hopefully will matter again in the future. But it's, it's really basic. I think it's exactly the same as a brand would have done in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, you're trying to build um, an experience that doesn't have a gate at the front and a security check. It's an open door that you can come on the high street, walk through, experience, browse, 
be entertained, you know, find something that you like. And maybe you don't have the money to purchase that thing right now. And that brand needs to have the confidence to let you go, to walk away and come back, maybe in a month, maybe in a year, but to come back in because they know that they've given you something that is aspirational or, uh, you know, exciting and interesting. That That's just really basic business that's uh, that's decades old. It is decades old. And I think, you know, you're calling out really two, two really important points there. One is, you know, you need to be clear-eyed about who you are, whether you're a founder, whether you're a CEO, who you are as an individual and what role you want the company to play and stay true to that instead of sort of letting the tail wag the dog and always try to be what anyone might want at any given time in any given market, you know, and match what a competitor's doing. The other thing is that You've got to have the confidence, the self-assuredness as a brand to just show up in a certain way and know that if you're purposeful and authentic and consistent, people can come and go, but they will orientate themselves around you and be loyal to you because of what you stand for, as opposed to being all those other things that I mentioned. And it is so basic. It is so fundamental. But I don't know, there's so much noise. The marketplace is so frenetic these days that people get very scattered and they get very schizophrenic in their in their messaging. And so I want to Point forward, you know, you pointed back to the 50s and 60s and these fundamentals. Well, then that forces me to ask you a $10 question, uh, Damien, which is like, you know, you're unique in that you're an inherently purposeful brand. You've got this heritage of trust that you've built and you're a, you know, highly regarded technology company. So how are we going to resolve this inherent tension between those who talk about humane technology, product ethicists, you know, smart contracts that do the right thing by artists, and what seems to be this relentless exploitative mindset that shows up and, you know, fuels the froth in any of these new technology arenas and, you know, really does a lot of harm. How do we make sure that the stuff that serves everybody ultimately in the long term, whatever your brand is, rises to the top? I think everyone has to, you know, wake up and take responsibility themselves. It's down to us. And I mean, that was that was a big chunk of my book, is it? I, I can I can harp on about the fact that we need to, you know, cap um, private wealth at a billion dollars, and no one needs any you know anything more than I don't know a billion or five hundred million or something. Um, I can harp on about you know, how we need regulation and how companies need to be you know kept in check, but ultimately it's down to you and me, um, and ultimately we have to deal with this thing. And <clears throat> I don't have a ton of confidence it's going to happen, but hopefully. There'll be enough people out there that would think that it's important that will shame you or uh, coerce you into thinking about what it is that you do. Yeah, I would like to think that when we get in enough trouble, we'll pay attention and start to prioritize things the right way. So I'm uh, blissfully uh, naive in that sense in the same way, perhaps. And, uh, and as, as someone so deeply invested in the tech world as you are, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Like, it's very broad to talk about the tech industry at large, but where do you see that it's most egregiously lying to itself, to others, in terms of betraying the promise, the technology, you know, the role it could play in our lives? Because I feel there's a real dissonance right now between how beholden we are to tech in everything we do, in all aspects of our lives, yet it, how exploited so many of us feel. Like, what's your great sort of angst with the industry right now? I mean, I love technology, so I don't really have a... I see it for what it is. So I think if you if you don't see it for what it is, then I think you're going to be angry with the internet for a long time. Um, but if you, you know, if you if you look at Mark Zuckerberg and you look at Elon Musk and you look at these people that are 
multi-billionaires that control an incredible amount of the internet, that literally have the power to move markets in a single tweet. Um, you, you, know, you have to understand who and what these type of personalities are and then work out you know, whether you want to really spend time with them. And mm-hmm. I think that's um, something that perhaps people overlook or haven't thought about enough when they get into bed with those types of, those types of organizations. I think um, I think the thing that I'm most agitated by is actually the lack of the lack of regulation and the lack of input from from government and organisations. There's this chap called Eli Pariser who who wrote an article on Wired that I think is one of the greatest sort of thought pieces around the internet, where he he talked about um, the need for public space. Um, and his point was that if you look at a, a metropolis like London or New York, um, they were set up by and grew by you know incredibly wealthy people that became you know huge landowners that made everything private. And it was only in if you take London in particular, it was only in the 1850s that London started putting in parks, public spaces into the city of London. Hyde Park was a private hunting ground for the royal family. Um, you know, Hackney didn't have a park. It was, it wasn't necessary. It was only in the 1850s, 1900s that it was deemed necessary for people to be able to go out into the, into a public space to, you know, communicate, to converse, all that sort of thing. It took 2000 years for that, for that to evolve. The internet has evolved at an incredible pace. Um, and yet still, you know, 22 years, 25 years down the line, there is no public space on the internet. It is all private. Even if Wikipedia is the closest example we have to a sort of public space, um, the cable, the landline, everything else that you know is feeding it is, is private. And I think it would be great for us. It would be hugely beneficial for us to be able to not have this conversation through Zoom, but to be able to have it through in a, in a space that is just purely, truly public, um, that is safe, unmonitored, unrecorded, uh, you know, no metadata trying being transferred between right, anything. Right. Um, and yeah, you know, if there was, yeah, if there's one thing that I think is a shame that it hasn't manifested over the last three years, few years is that governments haven't figured out how to actually create this, this space that enables, uh, everybody to be able to come together and talk and converse without it being owned by a monopoly or an oligopoly. And as a purposeful entrepreneur and technologist, why should we as entrepreneurs, as business leaders, feel optimistic? There's so many dystopian visions of the future out there right now. Why, why should we feel optimistic? Oh, because I think you know, COVID, COVID was really a, you know, an incredible challenge for us on so many levels. Um, and, I th- and I think that, of course, it was tragic that we were forced indoors and we were forced away from you know, work in different situations. But um, I think the upside of it was that I, th- I, I do believe that a lot of people reconnected with the local community and reconnected um, with families and friends at a, at a, at a different level. Um, and although technology has become, you know, greater reliance for everybody, um, I, f- I feel as if, maybe it's just me, but I feel as if there is a greater understanding of balance in the world. Um, and if I look at the the growth in companies like Headspace and Calm and the amount of conversation that's happening around meditation and mental well-being, I do think that for the first time in quite a while, people are beginning to um, take a step back and say, okay, I, this needs to work for me. 
how you know how am I going to interact with this? I'm I don't want to go back to the office. I want to work from home two days two days a week because actually for the first time in my life, I can go to the dentist and be back to the back to my work in thirty minutes as opposed to having to take half a day off to go to the dentist. And I, right. I, and I feel like we, we've we've reintroduced a bit of work life balance into the work the working life of a lot of people. Obviously not for everybody, um, but for a lot of people. And I. I'd like to think that this is just the beginning of us being able to reconsider and reevaluate what is really important in life. And it's not all work. I completely agree. And I want to say thank you, Damien, for making our lives easier through WeTransfer that we all use every day, but also being such a powerful example of an authentic brand. So thanks for sharing your insights. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lead with We. Our show is produced by Goal 17 Media. And you can always find more information about our guests in the show notes of each episode. Follow Lead With We on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, so you never miss an episode. You can also listen to Lead With We on all United flights on their entertainment consoles. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review on your platform of choice. And you can also watch our episodes on YouTube at We First TV. And if you're looking to go even deeper into the world of purposeful business, check out my new book, Lead With We, which is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Books. See you again soon, and until then, let's all lead with we.